lecture two of lectures on painting by edward armitage this librivox recording is in the public domain lecture two byzantine and romanesque art in the lectures i am about to deliver on early italian art i shall not enter into minute detail nor shall i attempt a history of all the painters of the fourteenth and fifteenth centuries who deserve mention all i can hope to give you is a sort of bird's-eye view of the various phases through which the art of painting passed from its lowest ebb to its highest development i feel as if you were a party of excursionists about to be personally conducted across a great art continent and as if it behooved me as your conductor to perform my duty with judgment and discretion we shall have a vast desert to cross where nothing is found to break the dull and ugly monotony of the scene we cannot do better than take the express train for this part of our journey and get over the ground as quickly as possible substituting miles for years we shall when we have accomplished something like a thousand miles begin to notice signs of a more fertile soil these indications will be very faint at first but after a time the objects of interest will become more frequent and we shall leave our train and take to riding or driving so as to get a better view of what we are passing after a drive of a hundred miles the country will become so interesting that we shall buckle on our knapsacks and perform the rest of the journey on foot to continue the parallel i would remind you that you are only excursionists and not leisurely travellers desirous of becoming thoroughly acquainted with the products of the country they are about to traverse to acquire a thorough knowledge of the decay and revival of art it would be necessary to consult the numerous and learned treatises on the subject and to study the political and social state of italy during the middle ages such a study though doubtless very instructive would be rather a dry subject for a lecture even if i were equal to the task i shall therefore attempt nothing of the kind and having always had a tender feeling for those whose attendance here is compulsory and admiration for those who come of their own free will i shall endeavour to be as little tedious as possible whilst imparting to you a sort of resume of medieval painting and the early italian schools the design and paintings which have been discovered in the catacombs are commonly held to be the earliest specimens we possess of christian art and if by christian art we mean the representation of biblical and new testament subjects they undoubtedly are the earliest if however by christian art we mean the peculiar style which grew up and was fostered by the early church we must look elsewhere for these paintings are essentially pagan in style in common with the paintings of the constantine baths and with the numerous decorative designs discovered in the pagan catacombs of the period they are clearly derived direct from classical sources they vary in merit according to the skill of the artist who executed them and also according to the epoch of their production those of the second century being infinitely superior to those of the third and fourth in the earliest of these paintings the good shepherd replaces orpheus elias replaces apollo and so on but the style is in no way distinguishable from contemporary roman wall paintings 
the arabesque ornamentation of the panels is exactly similar and although the subjects are such as moses striking the rock jonah swallowed by the whale daniel in the lion's den and various christian miracles these interesting works cannot be considered in any other light than specimens of late roman art adapted to the illustration of scriptural subjects these catacomb paintings look to me more like copies of better things than original paintings they appear to have been done by decorative artists who would naturally be more at home with the ornamental borders and arabesques than with the figures we may often notice this kind of inequality of work in modern houses the skilled workman employed by the professional decorator will execute with consummate neatness all the ornamental parts but if any figure is introduced into the panels it will be a coarse replica of some pompey muse nymph or cupid possibly quite good enough for the purpose but hardly indicative of the state of art of the period in the paintings of the third and fourth centuries there is a very noticeable decline in the drawing and execution but there is still a reminiscence of a classical style the draperies are still disposed with something like taste and the heads though very rude and clumsy have not the barbaric hideousness of a later period the last flicker of the antique lamp is to be found in those catacomb paintings of the fourth and fifth centuries when i say that they are not christian in style i mean that they are not ecclesiastical speaking strictly from a common sense rather than from an art point of view it appears to me that the simple garments and the unnimbied heads of the personages are more in keeping with the spirit of the new testament than the gold and the gorgeous ornamentation of a later period however that may be viewed simply as works of art they are the natural sequence to pompeii and the later forms of roman mural painting the case is very different with the large roman and ravenna mosaics of the fourth and fifth centuries but before proceeding to criticise these productions i should wish to say a few words about antique mosaic work the art of depicting objects by means of small cubes of marble stone or terracotta was invented about three hundred years before the christian era from a very simple beginning it gradually developed itself until under the first emperors we find the most complicated ornaments and even large historical compositions executed in mosaic the use of mosaic for the floors of temples and dwelling-houses was universal wherever the romans spread it was not confined to imperial rome or to luxurious pompeii but is invariably found wherever a wealthy roman planted his villa whether in the vicinity of the great sahara desert or in the less savage neighbourhood of the isle of wight as your average modern briton cannot do without his carpets so the ancient roman could not be happy without his tessellated pavement in spite however of this widespread fashion we do not find a mosaic used as a means of wall decoration it was almost exclusively employed for floors and tables some of these small cabinet pieces are beautifully inlaid and as works of art are by no means contemptible 
in a very few which have been preserved to us we find specimens of the opus sextile of the romans this differed from ordinary mosaic by the tesserae being cut into the form of the object to be depicted and then accurately put together like a puzzle map the well-known four pigeons perched on a taza discovered at tivoli is i believe the most beautiful specimen extant of the ordinary roman cabinet mosaic the examples of roman tessellated work applied to perpendicular surfaces are so rare and so unimportant that we cannot consider them as prototypes of the subsequent gigantic mosaic wall pictures the intermediate links are at any rate wanting there is one and only one mosaic that of st costanza near rome which might be viewed as the missing link it is supposed to have been executed toward the end of the fourth century and belongs essentially to the decorative school of ancient pagan art indeed so numerous are the little cupids and genii and so prodigal has the artist been of vine tendrils that the building containing it was formerly supposed to have been a temple of bacchus it is now however known that this the earliest specimen of wall mosaic was executed not in honour of bacchus but as a monument to the christian emperor constantine's two daughters not until the fifth century do we get to those colossal figures those blue and gold backgrounds those richly ornamented draperies which constitute the true starting-point of ecclesiastical art we often hear that cimabue is the father of modern art but the only reason for making him a kind of art adam is because his name has been handed down to us the real fathers of modern christian art are the nameless authors of these gorgeous though somewhat grim mosaics most art historians have included these splendid works in the later roman period they cannot certainly be called truly byzantine although they have a decided byzantine flavour about them and it is probable that many of them were executed by greek or byzantine artists but on the other hand they are so strikingly dissimilar to late roman work that they ought to be classed in a school by themselves the forms of the figures are of course stiff and lifeless if compared to the antique or to sixteenth-century art but they are quite graceful and animated when compared with the dead ugliness of the real byzantine work there is a certain grandeur sui generis about them particularly in the justinian and theodora mosaics of ravenna quite independent of their size and gorgeous ornamentation which we never find in later byzantine work the mosaics of the sixth century are in no way different in style from those of the fifth the finest specimens of this period are the well-known mosaics of saints cosmo and damiano in rome the head and figure of the gigantic christ which forms the centre has been much eulogized by critics but i confess i was disappointed when i last saw this mosaic size and perhaps antiquity have a good deal to do with the awe-inspiring qualities attributed to this work if the art displayed in this figure were really of a high quality some of its beauty would be retained in a reproduction on a small scale however much the panels of the sistine chapel may be reduced they always retain their original grandeur 
whereas this overpraised figure appears to me to lose all its imposing appearance when copied or engraved on a small scale of historical or biblical compositions properly so called there are none extant of this period the cause of this is partly no doubt owing to the nature of the materials then in use mosaic is certainly not suitable for figures in action nor for complicated compositions but there is also another reason for the absence of subject pictures during the whole of the long interval between the early roman emperors and giotto and that is they were not wanted there were no wealthy patricians in those dark ages who required their villas decorated no maecenas to give a helping hand to struggling genius the church was the only patron the poor artists of the period had and a very hard and narrow-minded patron she was reducing men who for aught we know may have had some talent to the level of mere workmen and artificers strictly limiting the range of their subjects and fettering them with traditional rules we are now fast approaching the true byzantine period of art historians tell us that byzantine or greek christian art was the offspring of the eastern church influenced originally by ancient greek art it seems hard to believe that these hideous deformities should have descended from ancient greek sculpture it is a kind of a darwinian theory turned upside down but still it may be true ancient greek does not necessarily mean the art of phidias and praxiteles it may mean the barbaric sculpture which preceded the advent of these great masters and i confess there is something in the odious grimace and the stiff draperies of byzantine figures which reminds me of certain very early greek work the introduction of the byzantine style into italy seems to have been very gradual the school existed at constantinople certainly in the fifth century and possibly much earlier its influence may be traced in the large italian mosaics of the sixth century but it was not till near the year seven hundred when constantinople was fairly established as the capital of the world that it became in all its ugliness the dominant school in italy the church of the fifth and sixth centuries with all its narrow-mindedness in the choice of subjects gave the artist a certain amount of liberty in his drawing and flesh-painting but about the year seven hundred even this liberty was denied him certain types were invented by monkish painters that is by men who were violently opposed to everything that made life agreeable these men it is needless to say were quite untrained artists but in their uncouth way they endeavoured to substitute their own ideal of humanity for the real thing and they succeeded only too well the ghastly type being firmly established all subsequent artists of this school were obliged to conform to it in the second nicene council a d seven eighty seven it was decreed that quote, it is not the invention of the painter which creates the picture but an inviolable law a tradition of the church it is not the painters but the holy fathers who have to invent and to dictate to them manifestly belongs the composition to the painter only the execution End quote. 
as i have already stated there is good reason for believing that the holy fathers not only dictated the composition but interfered pretty considerably with the execution insisting as they did on ascetic cadaverous heads and an indiscriminate use of gold there may have been another cause besides morbid asceticism which in the ninth century caused the church to adopt such an unearthly type of humanity namely the fear of the jews and mohammedans who were very numerous at constantinople it was natural that the growing sanctity of the grim mosaics should be associated in the minds both of jew and mohammedan with idol worship and accordingly we find that the emperor leo the isaurian wished to conciliate his non-christian subjects by the prohibition of all representation of the human form this however did not suit the monks a synod was called and ultimately it was agreed that sculpture alone should be interdicted but may we not suppose that a kind of compromise was made about painting and that it was settled that any near approach to the human form should be tabooed that art in short was to be of the nature of that which graced the old brig of ire forms like some bedlam statuary's dream the crazed creations of misguided whim forms might be worshipped on the bended knee and still the second dread command be free their likeness is not found on earth in air or sea kugler's description of these byzantine heads is so good that i cannot refrain from giving it he says quote, the large ill-shaped eyes stare straight forward a deep unhappy line in which ill-humour seems to have taken up its permanent abode extends from brow to brow beneath the bald and heavily wrinkled forehead the nose has the broad ridge of the antique still left above but is narrow and pinched below the anxious nostrils corresponding with the deep lines on each side of them the mouth is small but the somewhat protruding lower lip is in character with the melancholy of the whole picture as long as such representations are confined to grey-headed saints and ecclesiastics they may be tolerated but when the introduction of a kind of smirk is intended to convey the idea of a youthful countenance this type becomes intolerable even the madonna to whose countenance the meagreness of asceticism was hardly applicable here assumes a thoroughly peevish expression and was certainly never represented under so unattractive an aspect i have given you this quotation from kugler in order to show you the opinion of a learned and liberal-minded writer who certainly cannot be called a severe critic he goes on to compare byzantine with chinese art which is i think rather hard upon the poor celestials both styles of figure painting are equally conventional and equally untrue to nature but chinese figures are far more cheerful and decorative than the unhappy byzantine a room decorated by a chinese artist would be a pleasant place to live in but who except a long-distance walker a forty days faster or one of our modern votaries of self-inflicted martyrdom would care about inhabiting a house hung with byzantine pictures in these pictures the draperies gradually became more and more wooden until at last they got to be thoroughly in keeping with the heads 
there was a traditional arrangement of folds derived from the late roman works but this arrangement though originally founded on sound principles became in the hands of byzantine artificers most untrue and stupid the folds used to be indicated by a number of unmeaning straight lines regardless of the form underneath the one redeeming feature in the art of byzantium was the treatment of ornament founded partly on the late roman as existing in numerous temples of asia minor during the reign of the caesars and partly on the persian style as seen at persepolis palmyra and elsewhere byzantine ornamentation is both rich and graceful the arabs and moors carried the intricacies of byzantine tracery still further until the ne plus ultra was reached at the alhambra but to my taste the original byzantine style of ornamentation is bolder and more effective than the elaborate moresque there is no want of taste or invention betrayed here indeed there is far more variety than in the somewhat overloaded roman style of ornamentation as may be seen at once by comparing byzantine capitals with the debased corinthian of the romans this excellence not only in architectural detail but in every department of ornamental art shows clearly that when the artist had free play they were not deficient in taste and that we must ascribe the utter badness of byzantine figure-painting to the proper cause namely to the veto the church seems to have set on the study of the human form the principal difference between the byzantine and romanesque ornamentation is the more frequent occurrence in the latter of geometrical patterns formed principally by squares and equilateral triangles intersecting each other the walls and pavements of the romanesque churches of italy abound with examples of this geometric decoration in romanesque ornament again gold and mosaic are not so universally used as in byzantine but the transition between the two styles was so gradual and they were so closely connected that it is almost impossible to draw the line between them italy was in a very miserable and disturbed state during the dark centuries of the middle ages being overrun by barbarous invaders and often afflicted by internecine wars so that even without the leaden hand of the church stifling all original talent it is very improbable that any improvement in art could have been made for art to thrive it is absolutely necessary that a country should be undisturbed and tolerably prosperous although it by no means follows that a prosperous country must produce great artists take for example the republic of venice during the middle ages which whilst italy was being vexed with endless invasions and civil war enjoyed great prosperity and yet not a single attempt was made by her artists to emancipate themselves from the dead level of byzantine rules on the contrary the famous early mosaics of st mark's are amongst the most characteristic specimens of byzantine art which have been preserved to us of their original splendor as far as gold and workmanship could contribute to it there can be no doubt but of legitimate art there is no trace like all the work of this school whether mosaic or fresco the figures are done by routine and are as lifeless and mean in character as the worst byzantine types 
of course i am speaking of the series of early mosaics in st mark's the later ones executed in the twelfth century although very byzantine in character partake largely of the general improvement which was noticeable at that time the tremendous rapidity with which byzantine frescoes used to be executed is no excuse for their badness had the artists given ten times the labour they would have done no better all original design was prohibited everything was done from tracings of previous works these tracings were reproduced on the wall to be painted and the flesh tents were filled in with a uniform flat colour sometimes of a brick dust and sometimes of a green hue the draperies were done in the same way first a flat tent and then a few unmeaning black lines to represent folds this process was entirely mechanical the lines having no respect whatever for the limbs underneath to give you a better idea of the rapidity with which whole churches can be decorated in the byzantine style i will give didron's description of oriental fresco painting he was at mount athos about forty years ago and had the opportunity of seeing a monk and his five assistants at work mount athos has for the last thirteen centuries been the headquarters and principal laboratory of byzantine art and a countless number of pictures on wood are to this day exported thence as articles of commerce to the russian empire m didron says quote, one pupil spread the mortar on the wall the master drew the outline without either cartoon or tracings another pupil laid on the colours a third gilt the nimby painted the ornaments and wrote the inscriptions which the master dictated to him from memory and lastly two boys were fully occupied in grinding and mixing the colours the subject was a christ and eleven apostles life-size and the time taken to complete the work was under an hour i am not quite sure but what a couple of months experience in the mount athos workshops might not be of advantage to some of our students in the antique school our traveller adds i think quite unnecessarily that the work seemed to him very rude and coarse but it can be easily understood that at this rate a whole church could be covered with frescoes in a few days c'est magnifique mais ce n'est pas de l'art from what i have said you will understand the unchangeable nature of byzantine art pictures painted in this style may be more or less neatly executed but their artistic merit varies very little whether they be of the seventh or the nineteenth centuries whether they decorate st mark's at venice or an obscure monastery on mount athos as an illustration of this note a picture in the national gallery by a greek artist of the name of emmanuel the date of this work is sixteen fifty it was therefore painted long after titian raphael uh, p veronese and all the great masters had departed this life and yet with all their glorious works before his eyes what does this primeval artist produce all i can say is go and see for yourselves other schools have their ups and downs the italian the flemish the french and the english schools have all had and will continue to have their periods of elevation and depression but byzantine painting always maintains its dead level and will continue to do so so long as the greek church lasts 
pictures of this school are often associated with ideas of sanctity not only in holy russia but in western europe almost all miracle-working pictures belong to this class the calabrian peasant or the andalusian muleteer who would probably be unmoved by the madonna di san sisto is brought up to a high pitch of religious fervour at the shrine of some olive byzantine virgin with her pinched peevish face and wooden shoulders that this class of pictures has at all times been held to be peculiarly sacred is proved from the fact that at venice even in the time of titian the cultivation of the stiff byzantine style for popular devotion was maintained in juxtaposition with that of the most perfectly developed form of painting we may smile at the venetian religious world but i am not sure that at the present day an analogous tendency could not be imputed to some of us is there not to some aesthetic nostrils a kind of odour of sanctity about mediaeval perspective and composition it is true that our revivalists do not wish to go back to the byzantine period for our religious art the romanesque or at any rate the quattrocento style is the correct thing but why go back at all i can quite understand that in restoring an old cathedral it would be desirable to do so but in a modern building whether gothic or not to reproduce forms which we know to be incorrect and to introduce perspective which we know to be absurd seems to me to be carrying our reverence for the past a little too far a letter appeared in the times last summer which is so much to the purpose that i really must read it to you Quote, to the editor of the times june thirtieth sir i have before me a design for a window which it is proposed to place in a village church in lincolnshire as one of a group memorial of the late vicar his widow and two sons clergymen one of them a missionary of the church missionary society who died in india may i be allowed to describe the design the window is of two lights the dexter represents a cardinal in red hat and stockings red robe with blue lining and a nimbus round his head of a colour resembling olive green the sinister light has an archbishop with mitre pall polychromatic vestments and a blue nimbus round his head in his left hand a pastoral staff and in his right the sacred heart crimson with gold flames issuing from the top the drawing is signed by an eminent london firm and is submitted by the present vicar as a suitable memorial of his predecessor who was an evangelical of the old school and of his widow a lady whose dread of popery was almost morbid writers on art are fond of asserting that in spite of the repulsive ugliness of the byzantine types we ought to be grateful to the school for keeping the lamp of art alive during seven or eight centuries but i think that the history of the great revival does not bear out this assertion we find giotto and his followers hampered with the old traditions we find byzantine work rampant in venice down to the time of the bellinis impeding and indeed excluding all the various forms of progress which were spreading over northern italy and it may be noticed that all the faults and weaknesses of the early italian painters are traceable to byzantine sources i question very much whether the revival of art would not have been more rapid and complete had the byzantine school never existed 
the early reformers cimabue giotto and duccio would have had the great mosaics of the fifth century and such remnants of ancient pagan art as were then known to inspire them they would have been unfettered by byzantine tradition and i think it probable that their works would have been better in every respect every one with any experience knows that it is easier to instil sound principles of art into one who is totally uninstructed than into one who has already contracted a bad style of drawing and as it is with individuals so also is it with schools and phases of art then again it must be remembered that although the byzantine school was the dominant one during the middle ages there were in italy france and germany artists who had no connection with it and whose compositions as seen in manuscripts and missals will bear favourable comparison with similar work by greek artists of the same period i must refer you again to d'agincourt's book where you will find a great number of outlines from these miniatures in judging these works you must not however form your opinion as to their merits entirely by d'agincourt's illustrations they give a very fair idea of the drawing and composition but the charm of these small paintings lies in their colour and execution which are sometimes very beautiful the bayeux tapestry for instance though charming in the original becomes very uninteresting and ugly when translated into black and white the transition from byzantine to romanesque art was so gradual that it is very difficult to decide when the change took place byzantine rules and traditions had taken such firm root that it was not till the end of the fourteenth century that its influence was finally overcome we are however approaching the time of guido de siena and quinto de pisa and it is pleasant at last to know or to suppose we know the names of two artists after centuries of anonymous work the fact of these names having been preserved shows at any rate that their bearers were not mere workmen bound to execute the morbid fancies of the church but painters of some repute whose creations though still very cramped and stiff show better modelling and a more intelligent execution than are to be found in the works of their predecessors every one has heard of cimabue but comparatively few have seen his frescoes i imagine that his best work is in the church of st francis at assisi i once spent six weeks at assisi and devoted a good deal of time to the wall paintings of the church the frescoes of cimabue seemed to me infinitely better than his panel pictures but they were even then in such a state of decay that it was difficult to form an opinion of them this was twenty-two years ago and since that time i believe that the progress of decay has been very rapid indeed the arundel society had some admirable facsimile drawings of these works executed five years ago it is curious how much more rapidly all the old frescoes are decaying now than formerly i attribute this accelerated rate of ruin to the presence of gas in the towns at pisa the camposanto frescoes are deteriorating much more rapidly than before the introduction of gas into the town i don't know whether assisi is now blessed with a gasometer but if it is poor old simibu's work is doomed his famous madonna which was carried in triumphant procession through the streets of florence is painted quite in the greek style 
the flesh is better modelled and the draperies of the surrounding angels are much better drawn than in any previous example of byzantine work but i cannot understand the enthusiasm of the florentines the specimen we have in the national gallery appears to me to have been repainted the heads especially although ugly enough to be early work are of a later character and are painted in the fumbling uncertain way which is characteristic of restorers there are other artists of this period whose works show a great improvement on the old byzantine these are Toriti, who executed some fine mosaics in rome the brothers cosmati also of rome and gado gadi the florentine the mosaics of the last named in the dome of the baptistry at florence are very highly commended but they appear to me rather improved byzantine than true romanesque indeed with the single exception of simibu's frescoes at assisi i don't know of any work of the thirteenth century which has a true romanesque character at all giotto was as every one knows the pupil of simibue and i believe that the truth of the old story about simibue finding him when a shepherd boy occupied in drawing a sheep and taking him back to florence as an apprentice has not yet been doubted we can easily imagine the respect and awe which this shepherd lad would feel for the greatest painter of the capital and can readily believe that the work of his early youth would be founded entirely on that of his master it is more than probable that he served his apprenticeship at the great sanctuary of piety and art which arose after the death of st francis at assisi at any rate it is there that his earliest known and to my mind his best works are to be found the series of frescoes illustrative of the life of the saint may be considered as the starting point of historical painting in italy compare the figures in these frescoes with the best work of cimabue and notice what an enormous advance has been made here we have natural if somewhat timid action well-proportioned figures and skilful arrangement of drapery i confess i was surprised to hear that these works were anterior to his larger frescoes in the lower church which represent the glorification of st francis and which appeared to me to indicate a step backward toward cimabue it is probable that in these last-named frescoes which adorn the compartments under the high altar giotto did not venture to depart much from the traditional arrangement of his predecessors and accordingly we find the poor meagre composition and the horizontal lines of heads cherished by the thirteenth-century painters giotto would require a whole lecture to himself were i to attempt an account of what he did at padua florence rome and naples his chefs d'oeuvre are said to be in florence at the church of st croce no less than four chapels in this church were decorated by him but alas there is very little left time whitewash and the restorers have done their work pretty effectually still the mere outlines of many of the groups show that these works may very well have been the finest that the master ever produced i have seen the arena chapel at padua which is literally covered with giotto's frescoes it is many years since i was there and very possibly were i to revisit the chapel i might form a different opinion but at the time i was disappointed with the paintings which appeared to me weak in design and feeble in execution 
when we recollect that giotto had the customs and prejudices of eight centuries to contend against no antiques at hand to guide and purify his taste no great predecessors to imitate we cannot help paying homage to the genius of the man who produced the st francis series of frescoes at assisi and numerous other works both at florence and elsewhere i think that the true explanation of his wonderful success is to be found in the old sheep-drawing anecdote it shows that even as a shepherd-boy he felt that nature was the foundation of art instead of working by mere routine like the byzantine painters or like his master simibule endeavouring to improve in the same direction he went directly to nature both for his compositions his action and his drapery to us it may appear the simplest thing in the world to make studies from nature for our pictures but in the time of giotto such a course would be unusual and would be placed in the category of happy thoughts it may be argued that if he had lived in the tenth or eleventh century instead of the fourteenth he would never have been allowed by his patrons to attempt such daring innovations he must have remained in the old beaten track this is no doubt true enough and there may have been during the dark ages a dozen embryo giottos whose genius had been strangled by ecclesiastical leading-strings but we are none the less indebted to the man who gave the death-blow to the barbarous mechanical craft which for long centuries had usurped the place of art although anxious to do full justice to giotto as a great art reformer i must admit that he had some very unpleasant peculiarities which were blindly adopted and indeed exaggerated by many of his followers the most repulsive of these peculiarities is the sameness and meanness of his heads in the only specimen we have of his in the national gallery this fault is not conspicuous but it is very noticeable in the pictures of his school indeed the family likeness which pervades all the heads in the large orcagna is almost ludicrous in geodesque heads the eyes are a great deal too close together and never fairly open the nose is thin and pinched and the jaws weak and shapeless the type in short is diametrically the opposite of the antique and is it must be confessed a very ignoble one the constant recurrence of this mean type is more apparent in his later than in his early works and it is probable that many of these stereotyped heads were executed by his assistants but nevertheless giotto is answerable for them italian sculpture as well as italian painting is greatly indebted to giotto for it was he who designed the reliefs for the bronze gates of the baptistry at florence these designs were executed in masterly style by andrea pisano and may be looked upon as the starting point of italian sculpture in fact it is as the father of modern art rather than as a perfect painter that the name of giotto ought to be held in reverence many of his successors of the next century whom i shall mention in the course of my lectures approached much nearer to perfection than did giotto the composition of their pictures is less archaic the heads have more individual character and are much better drawn but we ought always to bear in mind that had giotto never lived we should never have had a masaccio a filippo lippi or a beato angelico and probably neither a leonardo nor a raphael louis quatorze is reported to have said l'etat c'est moi 
and giotto might with equal truth have declared la romanesque c'est moi so all-pervading was his influence besides the works of his immediate followers such as taddeo gaddi and orcagna italy abounds with giottesque frescoes whose authors are unknown or at least doubtful the most important of these nameless works are the large frescoes which cover the walls of the cappella degli spagnulia in santa maria novella at florence when i first saw these frescoes they were ascribed to taddeo gaddi and simone meme of siena but modern critics have justly i think pronounced against this authorship they appeared to me to be of a later date but i may have been misled by the disgraceful way in which they have been retouched this retouching or rather repainting has been the ruin of many of the early frescoes and it is most extraordinary that in italy of all places in the world such barbarous mangling should ever have been allowed the real culprits are not the obscure bunglers who did the work but the ignorant monks or town councillors who employed them these santa maria novella frescoes are very characteristic of the allegorical mania of the romanesque period one of them we are told is meant to represent the wisdom of the church but the allegory is so obscure and the component parts so heterogeneous that with the best intentions it is all but impossible to understand the painter's meaning why should grammar have a globe in her hand and why should logic have a serpent under her veil what has abraham done that he should be associated with arithmetic and why should john of damascus who for some occult reason typifies hope be mending his pen if the strange jumble in this fresco is bewildering what shall we say to the companion fresco which represents the activity of the church a dozen or more different centres of activity are in full play simultaneously the faithful are portrayed in one part of the fresco as men and women and in another part as a flock of sheep the dominicanes or dominicans are playfully represented as black and white dogs who are defending the sheep against wolves st dominic himself is preaching against heretics who are entreating pardon and burning their books but it is hopeless to give an idea of the confusion of imagery of the blending of piety with punning in this extraordinary fresco if i again refer in the course of my lecture to the romanesque allegories it is not that i am fascinated by them but because they are so numerous and so typical of the period that it is impossible to ignore them it would of course be unjust to blame the artists for these allegories or for the numerous inferno pictures they probably had to execute and make the best of the subjects that were given them dante may very likely be answerable for much of the questionable taste of the fourteenth century i shall endeavour in my next lecture to steer a middle course between the middle blind adoration of the fifteenth century work and the cynical philistinism which can discover nothing worthy of notice in this interesting period End of lecture two.